0: it's comforting at first
1: to sit down and read about a place where, you know, things could be perfect and to imagine what could be and to, you know, think about these possibilities. But I think on the flip side, utopian literature kind of gives us a cautionary tale sometimes because inevitably we see these examples of why it's not working. And so, you know, when I finish reading something or watching something, a utopian society seems perfect in the beginning, and then it starts to all fall apart by the end. At the end, I'm comforted to come back to the real world.
0: Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicky Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. You know what they say, one person's trash is another person's treasure. But what if the reverse were true? Can one person's idea of a perfect society actually be someone else's worst nightmare? Author Jacob Devlin joins me in unpacking utopian societies. The term utopia was coined by Sir Thomas More in 1516 in reference to a fictional island society in the new world. And that term has been used by writers ever since in reference to their ideal perfect society. What do utopias try to achieve? Equality seems to be the main objective, but because society is not homogenous, are utopias just another form of control with an effective PR strategy? Let's get started. Okay, so Jacob, uh, before we get into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as an author, a writer, and tell us about your big weekend last weekend?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is really awesome. Um, But my name is Jacob Devlin. I am a fantasy writer. I primarily write middle grade, young adult, kind of straddle the line between the two and go back and forth. Um, I'm based here in Tucson, and I published six books up to this point. And this past weekend, it was really exciting. I got to go over to the, the Tucson Festival of Books, which is a really huge tradition that happens here in Tucson. And I think it's the third largest book festival in the country. And so um, just such a cool thing that we have that in our own backyard. And so I was there this past weekend, and I got to sell some books in the Indie Pavilion on Saturday. Um, But it was also just really fun to walk around and be a fanboy. Like a lot of my favorite favorite authors were were in town, V.E. Schwab and T.J. Klune. So I went and saw their panel on Saturday, and then yesterday, my my primary goal was to get the rest of my book signed by them, and so. <laughs> Um, So it was just really fun to walk around and enjoy the festivities and they always have good food and a great atmosphere. And it was great to have this come back to town after a couple years off from the pandemic. So it was great.
0: I feel the same way. I was so excited to get out there and there were, I I think the event started mid-morning and I got there right when it started and there were thousands of people just walking around that mall. So um, I'm excited that it's back as well. I got to peek a little bit into the tent where V.E. Schwab was. It was a little crowded. My kids were with me, so there's only so much I could do before they got bored. Uh, But um, I was really glad to see you and support you uh, at the Indie Author Pavilion. And so, yeah, um, I'm also excited that you're going to be on this podcast. We've been following each other for a couple of years. I actually first found out about you from a Tucson Comic Con. I don't know if you remember that. But I saw your booth there, and I bought one of your books, and then I looked you up on Instagram, and then the rest is history.
1: Right. I was trying to remember. I think that's where we met was Tucson Comic Con in 2018 or 19, one of those years. But yeah,
0: <laughs> you do a great job with the with all the conventions and the book festivals. So good for you. You're a good author getting your work out there.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot.
0: <laughs> okay, so this is an interesting. Uh, topic that we're discussing today. When I first reached out to you and gave you a list to to choose from or, you know, to come up with your own, you gravitated towards utopian societies. Can you tell me a little bit about what made you interested in that topic?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that my interest in the utopian societies comes from a couple different things. Number one, I think, is probably my psychology background. That's one of the degrees that I got um, at the University of Arizona. And I've just always been fascinated by the study of human mind and human behavior, and I think what I got out of that is that humans are imperfect, but that we are drawn to the possibility of like self-improvement, and so it doesn't stop us from trying to live in these perfect worlds or build towards perfect societies, and so it's just really fascinating to think about that, that clash. You know, we're imperfect by nature, but we're always trying to improve and to uh, and to get better and there are just so many cool examples in society of how that happens you know we we look at these so-called perfect societies and I'm excited to start poking holes in them with you and mm-hmm. how um you know we're, we're drawn to this idea of um the, these perfect worlds but there's I think in a lot of times there there's this trade-off you know we um I, Uh, So I'll back up a little bit and say that I took a class in higher education a couple of years ago, and a lot of it was that we were studying systems of higher education. And what I kept coming back to is that this whole system is broken. I was one of those people like, burn it all down and start from scratch. It's Mm -hmm. not equitable and it's not working. And then the professor would always tell me like, no, Jacob, the system isn't broken. The system's working. But for who? Who benefits from this? And what's the trade-off? Who doesn't benefit from this system? And then so when we were talking about utopian societies, that's kind of the lens that I approached it from is that um, you know, utopia for who? Who's benefiting from these perfect societies? And then when we look at these uh, examples in literature, what's the trade-off or who, at, who's at the cost of who, or who, um, you know, is isn't, who's kind of getting the short end of the stick from this? So. <laughs>
0: So the term utopia may have come about in the 1500s by Thomas More, but what you were talking about, the desire to pursue, define, or create perfect societies, traces back to as long as we've had societies. Uh, you went into this a little bit, but what do you think is its greatest appeal? Why do we continue to write about it or read about it in books?
1: I think one reason maybe is that it gives us an escape. You know, we there's so much about literature that you know it's it's comforting to be able to sit down and and get away from you know what's going on in the real world, you know, especially these past couple of years living in a pandemic and there's awful things happening in other countries and such. And so it's it's comforting at first to sit down and read about a place where, you know, things could be perfect and to imagine what could be and to, you know, think about these possibilities. But I think on the flip side, utopian literature kind of gives us a cautionary tale sometimes because inevitably we see these examples of why it's not working and so you know when i finish reading something or watching something where a utopian society seems perfect in the beginning and then it starts to all fall apart by the end at the end i'm comforted to come back to the real world it's like you know kind of yeah. be careful be careful what you wish for because you know there are a lot of it kind of shows us that we have a good and you know we can keep aspiring for better but there's uh, there might be a cost to it sometimes
0: Yeah, I I definitely see that. I know from my limited experience with utopia, utopian literature and all that stuff, like my my feeling is that it comes from at least two places, right? You have people who are experiencing a really terrible life. They want things to be better. And it's a good way to explore what does a world look like without war, without conflict. But then on the opposite spectrum, you have the perspective of someone who wants to control what is uncontrollable. And they create, one of my examples that we're going to get to, Thomas Moore, uh, as my prime example, is a, is a great one where he's trying to control what really is not controllable. And the motivation isn't to for himself to uh, escape hardship, but rather to enforce a certain quality of life on everyone else. So it's like, yeah. there's a, a good perspective, and then there's a sinister perspective on utopian communities. Um, so... Yeah, let's let's go into this. I asked you to think of some utopian, uh, fictional examples. I, I thought was we can go into what makes them awesome, and
1: mm-hmm. then what
0: go, what makes them kind of scary. And yeah. do you want to just go back and forth on it?
1: Awesome, that sounds great.
0: Okay, so how about you start?
1: All right. Um, so I I remember messaging you a little bit before and saying we have to talk about Westview from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So um,
0: Specifically from the WandaVision show that came out recently.
1: Yeah, definitely. So mm-hmm. WandaVision, um, just a, a fantastic show and an exploration of grief and kind of the ways that we deal with grief. And so, um, so I was thinking a lot about that when we got into um, the topic of utopia and how in WandaVision, Wanda has created her own utopia, and she looks to these sitcoms that influenced her when she was growing up and these shows that she used to use to escape from her traumas and from the horrible things that weren't happening during her childhood and so she would watch dick van dyke and she um and so she she grew up and she created this reality where you know everything's just like her sitcoms and we're going back and forth in the different eras and she's trying to create her perfect dick van dyke life and all of these other things and so um, so it's really interesting to think about how you know she's she's created this perfect world where she has basically everything she wants, but I think the cost is that she's doing it, you know, in a way that the people who are who are there don't have any agency in it. She's kind of holding them under a spell, and sometimes it seemed, it kind of goes back and forth between. Sometimes they seem to be aware that they're under the spell and they're trying to get out, um, and some of the other people. Some of the other times it seems like they're completely unaware that they're living in this other reality and they're just going along with it and having a good time but um, but there's that ethical dilemma like you know she has everything she wants but she has all these other people under her her spell and they don't have any control over this which i thought was really interesting
0: in the final episode when they're finally freed from the spell and there's a confrontation that happens and Wanda kind of acknowledges her wrong in the whole situation she's told by another character that these people will never understand what you sacrificed which I found to be a really interesting take on um, who was really carrying the most amount of trauma throughout the entire series whether it was Wanda being justified in her actions versus these poor people victims of their circumstance What, what were your thoughts on that season finale.
1: Yeah, it was so heartbreaking you know to you know think about it from the perspective all the, the the citizens of Westview kind of waking up and getting to go back to their life. But the whole time you know I was also heartbroken for Wanda because she you know had created this reality where she had everything back. you know she had her the love of her life back and she had these two you know perfect kids that she was raising and she had to give all of that up and just the, the show give, does a really great job of taking you into that perspective and what it feels like because you've been with her for so many movies watching her lose and lose and lose. And then suddenly she has everything back. And from minute one of one vision, it's this perfect world. And then slowly but surely you watch it all fall apart and you see it from, from her mind and her eyes. And it's just, it, it's heartbreaking for everybody really. it's I think it's one of the most tragic um, projects in the MCU that we've had so far, but it's so beautifully done and says so much about the way that we grieve and, um, and just the, the ways that we process that.
0: I love the use of sitcoms because it helps us as the viewers feel what she feels because it's a shared nostalgia. And we all look back on those olden days with with like rose-tinted glasses. True. And so be, to be able to use that as the lens for the storytelling was was so interesting. And I just, I love the entire show and its, its
1: approach. Definitely. And it came out at such a perfect time too, you know, when we were all kind of trapped at home and many of us were looking to TV, I think, is an escape from the pandemic and from being quarantined and and stuck at home. You know, for me, I know I was watching Schitt's Creek (laughs) and, and, you know, kind of getting stuck in my own sitcoms too. And so it was just so interesting how, you know, the the timing of One Division coming out and talking about like her kind of trapping everyone else in these sitcoms and these perfect worlds is really cool. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So my first example, I decided to go back and pick apart the source of the word utopia, which was Thomas More's book, Utopia. Mm -hmm. Uh, He describes a fictional island society in the new world. And some of the pros I guess you can pull from this uh, is that people are free to choose their own religion without fear of violence. All assets are shared. Agriculture is the main industry. Men and women share work. All citizens work. Unemployment is no problem. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we've established this little society. But mm-hmm. then you start to break down what a lot of those things mean and this is where you start looking at the perspective of the person creating the utopia the need to control what is uncontrollable
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the cons that i was able to list from this, this situation is number one there's no private property so there's a loss of individualism there's mm-hmm. no locks on doors so a safety issue the first thing i think of is <laughs> i need to have locks on my doors <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, everything is simple simple clothes simple jobs tasks You have a loss of identity, Uh, being able to uh, stand out the way that you want to stand out or have your, if you have a particularly colorful personality, you aren't able to express that in different ways because everyone's monotone. Um, All people are required to work. The idea that uh, no unemployment seems like a very fanciful idea, but I really hope there's accommodations for special needs. And Mm -hmm. back in the day, I don't even know if they even thought about things like special needs. So um, I worry about that. And then over here, it's, it's a reflection of its time, slavery is in the household. Every household has two slaves. These slaves are either people from other countries that are prisoners or they're people within the utopian society that have done bad things. So even though you don't have locks and everything's supposed to be shared, your neighbor broke into your, or walked right into your house anyway and did something bad. So now they're, they're mm-hmm. I guess their use of jail is they become your slave. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. that's horrible (laughs) then it goes then you go on to things that are clearly very um church influenced so you have premarital sex is punished by a lifetime of enforced celibacy uh which i feel like is not gonna really help anything (laughs) no Um, Then you have old and everyone eats, but the elderly and administrators are given the best food. So when it comes to the elderly, a lot of cultures have this where the the elderly are um, revered and respected. They get first dibs and the meals, all those things. But when you talk about administrators having the best food, then you've introduced corruption or a potential for corruption. And so I'm like, nice structure, um, I guess, Thomas Moore, but um, there's – some holes in, in the logic here and then um, there's so many I can keep going but the last one I'll have is that women confess their sins to their husbands once a month and so you know clearly back in the day women did enjoy the same levels of equality as what we're aspiring and have achieved here in certain parts of the world it's awful awful structure the whole thing to me utopia sounds like a nightmare uh, but <laughs> on a chill, on a chilling note um so while he's preaching all these things about freedom of religion without fear of violence, he was in a position of leadership and he oversaw the burning and torture of Protestants in England. Oh. So I, it's just scary when you think about what people will preach and say is perfect versus what they themselves represent. Um, there's a really great New Yorker article that explains the contradictory and hypocritical nature of the Utopian project. And this um, it's called The Return of the Utopians. Highly recommend. So... Wow. there you go that that that's my first uh dissection
1: yeah that's fascinating yeah i agree that sounds like a, a scary place to live and it comes back to that idea of who, utopia for who you know that's his perfect world but there's so many power structures there that um you know it sounds like it would be a horrible place for yeah exactly yeah um i was thinking about um you, you had mentioned Star Trek when we were emailing. And to be honest, I don't know very much about the, the world of Star Trek, but I went back and I rewatched that first JJ Abrams movie. I remember really loving that when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and right away, I started thinking about when they showed um, you know, the, the Vulcan world and um, where Spock grows up. And so my understanding of that is that they kind of abandon all emotion, right? They're, they're completely governed by logic, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And so I thought that was really interesting how, you know, that's kind of their idea. Their, their idea of being perfect is that if they abandon all of their, you know, emotions and they don't think about love or, you know, anger or anything, and they just completely let, you know, intellect and logic govern everything, that that will somehow make it the perfect place to live. And, um, but it, it's, it was just really, Cool to see how how Spot grows up in that movie and kind of realizes that he has to use a little bit of both, you know, because you can't completely ignore all emotion. Like, how how do we survive without fear or without stress, you know, to to kind of help us, you know, survive in this world? But also, um, you know, we can't completely let those things be the things that have us you know rule you know <laughs> so, yeah so yeah, it thought-
0: reminds me of i was in an ethics class in college at one point and they there's always a question about if you're in a boat and there's not enough food to go around who gets kicked off the boat or do you all perish right and, it, yeah. and then the breakdown happens of who qualifies to live yeah. and someone always makes the argument that unless you don't have like a logical functional purpose you're gone Oh. Um, and many times those functional purposes are kind of very, uh, they're limiting. They're limiting in what they are. Maybe they're only functional purposes to that specific situation or they're limited to that one person's imagination. Yeah. And I think about that a lot with like logic is the only way to go. Emotion just gets in the way. Uh, but then at the same time, you find out how so much of your emotions actually govern the decisions you make. And it's where compassion mm-hmm. comes from. Mm-hmm. So I th- that's an interesting take on that. For Star Trek, I was looking at, um, I'm not as familiar with Star Trek. I just know that it's one of the great examples of a mm-hmm. utopian society. How mm-hmm. Earth is now an egalitarian utopian state. And now they're doing these great things off in space to kind of basically teach other people to be great too, I guess, is what it boils down to. I, I'm sorry to minimize, I'm not a huge Trekkie fan. I don't wanna <laughs> like huge Trekkie fans out there. I Much love and respect. Anyway, um, <laughs> but the fact that the story isn't on earth anymore, it's mm-hmm. on the spaceship visiting other planets that I'm like, this utopian state of earth is now very boring. It's <laughs> not interesting to us anymore. And in fact, the conflict is, is what continues to be interesting to us.
1: True, yeah. And then, and then my understanding, I was taking notes on how like the Federation, their whole goal is peacekeeping and trying to keep the peace between the worlds, um, which is admirable, you know, I think it's really great that there's this Federation going on and just trying to make sure that everything is fine. But I think the whole conflict of the movie comes from how Nero comes back and starts attacking the worlds because the Federation couldn't save his planet when it was about to be like eaten by a a black hole or something like that. And so he gets really mad at the Federation and then he comes back, goes back in time and lashes out at um, at Earth and at Spock and he attacks Spock's home world and everything. And so I I might be, you know, complicating the plot or getting it completely wrong but that was my understanding of Star Trek. And so um, so it, it was just interesting to think, you know, like even If the Federation is out out there, you know, kind of keeping the peace and doing the right thing, there's always that human failure too, right? Like there's gonna be times where they're not able to save everybody. And then those emotions come back and, you know, Nero gets mad and he retaliates because he feels that the Federation failed him. and, And so even, you know, if everyone has these really great intentions, you know, there's gonna be that human error sometimes where, you know, something goes wrong and then emotions get involved and, And so I don't know if it's possible for perfection to exist if we can't always do, you know, follow our best intentions too. Yeah,
0: no, that's a really, really good point. And it takes us back to what what point in a society does the breakdown start happening?
1: Um,
0: Okay, is there anything else that you wanted to say about Star Trek before I move on to the next one?
1: I think that's all I have for Star Trek, yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, The other one that I was thinking about was The Matrix, which is a utopian and a dystopian at the same exact time, so hear me out first. Yeah. <laughs> the Matrix, I think the machines knew what we are about. And so they created what they intended to be a utopia. So Mm -hmm. it's an example of a totalitarian rule of enforced servitude that tries to address a couple of things. They have, we have an insured foods, there's, I'm sorry, let me start over. There is an insured food supply for the robots and they have satiated humanity's desire for violence since the matrix that they create is supposed to reflect our actual world. It doesn't try to create a perfect world. and especially since violence doesn't stop within the Matrix, even though it's not needed. So that's where I'm like, okay, these, these robots are probably thinking, we did a good job. You know, we've ensured we've <laughs> our food supply and the humans are happy. You know, they should have no reason to complain. But of course, we as humans watching this, the con is that it's dystopian because we have no control. Yeah. <laughs> um, not necessarily because the Matrix has war and crime and violence in it. So I find that to be interesting that we're fighting against the lack of control and the whole point of getting out of the matrix is to re- get your control back. I actually think that this is a good representation of a human might try to enforce world peace mm-hmm. um, while fighting against our more volatile natures. Like I'm, Like, basically, it's like, you will not fight anymore. Everything will be peaceful. And meanwhile, <laughs> everyone is... Like wait, but you know, <laughs> like all these feelings, these complex and nuanced issues that come up that ha- usually result in in conflict. So uh, yeah, that that's my example.
1: Yeah, and definitely that that was my thought on the Matrix too. Is that you know if if we lose all of our control, then you know is it really perfect because you know we've lost our agency there. And it reminds me of some other examples. Like I, I started thinking about Bossing say too from Avatar. Do you watch Avatar?
0: I have seen the first. With the one with the on?
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen that one. Yes.
1: So they go to this city, I think, in the second season, and they're they're looking for the Earth King, I think, because like Aang has learned a, a secret about how to defeat the the Fire Lord, I think, um, and so he goes to Basingse and tries to find the King so he can you know, kind of share the secret and they can get together in this fight and take down the fire lord. But when they get to Ba say like they're they're greeted by this woman. Her name is Judy, I think. And she and she has this like really big, you know, like cheesy grin. And she says, like, welcome, you're completely safe now. Everything is fine. And right away, you can tell that there's something off. And as they're making their way through the city, you know, she she just keeps on, you know, putting on this facade of, like, everything's great and you're going to be safe here for the rest of your life or however long you decide to stay here. But then they, they start seeing that there's all these breakdowns where, you know, the, the poor people are out on the street and other people are kind of uh, reaping all of the benefits and... Um, and everything's not fine, you know. She's she's keeps insist- insisting that that everything's great, and she keeps saying like there's no war in Bossing but like very clearly there is something going on, and there's all these inequalities, and it's kind of spilling into you know this war with the the Fire Lord, And there was there was a point where I was rewatching this episode, and I took a picture because um, every time somebody mentions the war, like somebody comes and like silences them, and so I, I took a picture because I had the captions on and. Um, one of them gets captured and let's see the guy who captures them says in silencing talk of conflict bossing say remains a peaceful orderly utopia <laughs> so like, i was like that's perfect you know for for our our discussion today because you know they're they're doing their best to maintain this illusion of peace but Ironically, they're you know silencing all these people and they're capturing them and they're they're binding them up and saying like be quiet stop talking about the war <laughs> it's just creating more problems and so so even if they're if even if it does become a peaceful place like it's at the cost of their you know their ability to, to speak freely and to have open conversation you know they're just pretending that everything is fine <laughs> so
0: well and from a psychology perspective how does that seem for someone who may have grown up being conditioned to constantly hide. Their thoughts and problems. I'm sure that ha- that takes a toll on people, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was something I was thinking about too. Um, and then, it also has those parallels to to the good place. I told you about. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about the good place because uh, as soon as they get to get to the good place in the first episode and there's this big sign that says everything is fine and they're just supposed to pretend that everything is fine. <laughs> um, and so you know it's it's hard you know if, if somebody is you know kind of being conditioned to, to say like everything's perfect or like if, if you're sad and somebody tells you don't be sad everything's great you know that doesn't really help somebody and so um, and so to to create this fake world where you know everyone's putting on this smile but they're not actually feeling it you know it's that's just creates a lot of problems further down the line
0: don't you find i i find that happens a lot to just even not even on societal levels but like within the home right hiding family secrets hiding family conflict because you want people to think that everything's okay
1: true right it's kind of like the the encanto movie that just came out where Mm -hmm. they don't talk about bruno
0: yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or the movie *Turning Red* that just came out uh, as well on Disney Plus, where nice. there's everything is fine, everything's great. The main character has been conditioned her whole life to be a perfectionist, and that everything's perfect about it. But then the walls start breaking down. You realize it's not fine, and the only way that you can really resolve things is to talk about it.
1: True. Yeah, that's a great example.
0: I have how many more examples? have? I have one more. I just wanted to check
1: before we go for it. it. Yeah. Okay,
0: alrighty. So my example is. The Town of Haven from The Knife of Never Letting Go books. So it's the Chaos Walking series by Patrick Ness. Have you read that yet? I have, yeah. Okay. Yes. um, I, first of all, fantastic books. I have seen the Chaos Walking movie. I would not say that that is the best representation of the book series. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so the utopia that I'm referencing is The Town of Haven it is the final end point for our heroes, Todd and Viola, as they are fleeing the villains. So the whole movie, they're trying to get away from these people that are trying to take over all of society along um, on their planet. And they believe that once they get to this, the town of Haven, they will be safe. And this is a spoiler alert. So um, this whole podcast is a spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but when they get there... The citizens of Haven end up surrendering and it's like the biggest betrayal and the big cliffhanger in the first book. And then when you get into the second book, you start kind of seeing the, the softness of the society that's become so uh, com- not complacent, I guess you can say, where they become so trusting of situations um, mm-hmm. where they allowed a villain to enter into their, their town and take over. Uh, because they believe what they say or they want to believe what they say in hopes that they won't get killed. Um, I just thought that was a really good example of seeing something ideal from a distance. It looks great from far away. And Mm -hmm. then you get closer and you see the cracks in the system.
1: That's true. Yeah. Uh, Those were such great books. Um, I'm trying to remember because I think part of the appeal for them is that they want to get to this place where you can't hear anybody's thoughts, right? The germ hasn't infected Haven. Is that part of the idea?
0: They have figured out how to, um, yes, they suppress the thoughts. I don't remember exactly those. If it was never got there, or if they learned how to suppress it, but yes, you're right.
1: Right, right. Yeah, because that—that I think was part of why I, I love the book so much. Like it was just so interesting to think about a world where you can hear everybody's thoughts and just the complications that would come up with that. And so. Um, so they're basically what they're trying to get back to is this world that almost looks like ours. You know, you can't hear anything, but um, but then when they get there, there there's all of these complications that arrive with the mayor having beaten them there and then separating separating everybody out. You know, all the all the boys are over here learning how to be strong warriors, right? And all the girls are over here. They're supposed to be the healers, and so there's all mm-hmm. the, those you know gender dynamics at play there. Um, but yeah, and in, in the end, Haven was just so horrifying from what I remember.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, and that book was horrifying to me. I felt like the way that they uh, handled, or the way the writer handled, reading people's thoughts felt very honest to me, and yeah. it's scary. It's kind of scary, and it talks about how what do you fear most? Your your internal most, I don't know, depraved thoughts. Some you know, whether or not you're an evil person or a good person, thoughts happen. <laughs> and when you can't hide it from anybody what like who is really the bad guy i I find that to be so interesting and you have todd who um when he meets viola he has all these thoughts about her right and he's immediately ashamed of them he wants to hide them you know (laughs) Um, i just think it's such an interesting uh way of looking at us and how uh, we can hide who we are in in an attempt to create um, like manufacture our facades and you have some of the like the leader, the, the, there was the mayor, correct? And then there was a priest. Those are the main villains. Um, and I just remember like everything about it was just so scary to me. It was, yeah. <laughs> All right, do you have any other examples?
1: I don't think so. No, those are the ones that I wrote down today.
0: Okay. Well then, now that we have picked apart other people's utopias, <laughs> um, <laughs> our next challenge was, if you had to create a utopian society, or maybe even explore a utopian society in one of your writings, what would it look like?
1: Yeah, that was a great question. And I've thought about this all week long, trying to figure out how this is even possible. And um, in the end, I never got there. I tried to get as close as I could. Um, So I think if I had to create a utopian society, like what would perfect look like for me? I think somehow true social justice has been achieved. You know, there is no power dynamics that oppress people. Uh, you know, people are kind to each other. There's affordable housing and healthcare and college access. People are genuinely kind to each other. There's no horrible you know, tension between groups and everything. You know, that's something that, that I hope that we can achieve one day. Um, I would love to live in a place that looks kind of like the Shire, but then I, oh, <laughs> I think, that'd be great! <laughs> right, you know, the Shire the is just so happy and you yes, know, with-, with lots of food. <laughs> <laughs> I think the trade-off though is kind of like what you were talking about with uh, with Thomas More's Utopia, though, and that you know, like it kind of has that that simple life to it. And uh, you know, while while that's appealing at first, you know, there's there's no advancement, and and so I think that you know there, there's the dark sides of of that too and so it's really it's really tough and even if we even if we achieve perfection uh, another part of the good place is that at the end you know they finally get to the real good place at the end and they spend you know years and years and years in this perfect world and in the end even that you know they they start to realize you know they can't be there forever you know there's a character who plays the perfect game of madden football like on a football field on a big screen (laughs) and then that's kind of his moment where he's like i think i've done everything i ever wanted to do like i'm ready to move on i'm ready to just not exist anymore and then like one by one you see all these characters have that moment where it's like okay i've seen everything i've done everything i've lived in this perfect world and my soul is at peace now. I'm ready to move on. And so, so I think the good place was just such a great example of how, you know, like, even if you get, even if you get to perfect, like it can exist forever. So yeah, there mm. was perfect, so.
0: So my example of a utopian, first of all, I just have to acknowledge that I once tried to create a utopian society, in animal crossing and Tom Nook did not let me because he's greedy. He's this <laughs> little, he's this little bear thing. I think he's a bear and he just keeps, um, Taking my money <laughs> for <laughs> the development of this island. And, uh, you know, for me, that my, my idea of it was to have, like, nice, peaceful, where people can settle their tent anywhere they want and grow however they want. And then the societal pressure started coming in. Like, we need more people here. And, oh, by the way, we need to reach a, a certain level town in order for you to get these certain benefits. And then I was like, my, my idea of utopia does not work in Animal Crossing. But... <laughs> That is okay. So then, yeah, I thought about this as well, and I took it from um, I'm like, all right, what do humans need to be happy? You and you have the classic Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid. Yeah. Um, the four fundamental, to, ugh, excuse me, <laughs> the four fundamental needs that a person needs to feel content. So you have the physical, air, food, water, sleep, clothes, shelter. Then you have security, health, emotional, financial, personal security, relationships. So family, friends, and intimacy and esteem, which is respect, self-respect, and independence. So I feel like as long as those things are met, you have a good foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's certain things that I think are essential to making sure those things are met, like solving food scarcity. Um, Mm -hmm. From my angle, I think it was less about controlling others as a means to prevent violence, but rather to have a more responsive system to conflict. We know people are going to have issues with each other. So Mm -hmm. um, how can we reduce the actual violence Um, The only way I could think of, well, if I'm thinking in a a totalitarian approach, um, (laughs) the Big Brother system used for intervention, but how do you use Big Brother without it being Big Brother, you know?
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) Those are my thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's really hard, yeah, and and that was something that I kept thinking about, too, is that, you know, like, conflict is going to exist, and I think that conflict can be healthy, you know, it can, you know, um, there are some really good things that can come out of that, and... know even at my day job i always tell my students like i i don't want to see like any any drama in the workplace but conflict is okay you know some really good things can come out of that and there's a difference between drama and conflict but but then i think you pose a really good question about like how do you enforce this no drama thing or like how do you make sure that conflict is healthy without kind of exhorting you know this power dynamic over (laughs) them. Yeah,
0: exactly. In my work, there's a term that they use called courageous conversations. It used to be a culture of conflict. Then people thought that was a little negative. So it became (laughs) courageous conversations. And so a courageous conversation could mean someone comes to you with an issue and they have a valid valid problem uh, and being able to address it without escalating it and whether that or not that means the courageous conversation has to be with that actual individual who's come to you or you have to go to the other party you know that's involved in the issue um and i thought that was interesting so i guess maybe courageous conversations would be a part of my utopia uh i didn't go into things like i didn't go too deep into this exercise i guess i was more concerned about the the, the pyramid pyramids of the pyramid of needs um but yeah, when I think about what Thomas More did, is he came up with this whole di- um, discipline structure, and <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> any other thoughts that you had about utopian societies?
1: I don't think so. I know.
0: Okay. Do you think human nature allows for utopian societies to be realized?
1: I don't think so. No, I tried to, you know, argue the counterpoint with myself all week long, but. I don't think that human nature allows for a true utopia because we're all different and conflict is natural. And, you know, I think that if we got to a point where everybody was on board with courageous conversations and, you know, healthy conflict, then I think that it would be possible. But I don't think that we're we're quite able to, to have that point yet. However, I don't think but that should stop us from trying. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's important that we keep on striving and, you know, dreaming of, you know, like what would better look like and striving for better. But I don't know that perfection is possible.
0: <laughs> I agree with you. I feel like in the thousands of years that we've been kind of in societies, there, there's been opportunities and and what we've seen instead are cycles and, True. you know, certain empires rise and fall and, you know, societies start out small and then they grow and, the way that they're governed, have to change to adapt to the population, you know, all those things. And um, I agree with you in, in that it's important, however, to be optimistic and to use utopian fiction as a platform to envision how we can be better while also acknowledging our blind spots. So I really love the discourse over utopian stories because someone presents an idea like what we've just done and then someone else goes, what about this issue in there? And you're like, oh yeah, valid point. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Definitely. <laughs>
0: Okay. So I have actually prepared a series of rapid fire questions for you that I did not send ahead because I think it's fun to (laughs) do rapid fire
1: questions. So are you ready? All right. Awesome.
0: Okay. What music do you listen to while writing?
1: so i alternate i really love the killers and i love muse i listen to either of those when i'm okay with like having words in the background Mm, yeah (laughs) Um, but i also really love to pull up like movie scores and video game music because sometimes the words distract me and so i look for like movie scores and things that feel really cinematic while i'm writing too
0: what's your current favorite movie score
1: my current favorite um I would say just about anything by Hans Zimmer is really oh, yes. awesome to listen to. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I've been enjoying the Batman. I haven't even seen the movie yet, but I've been just listening to the the soundtrack on Spotify over and over and over again.
1: The music was fantastic. The movie was great too. So. Okay, I have an idea of what the movie's about based
0: off of the music. I'm sure I'm wrong. It's going to be a fun game when I finally see the movie. I have this like thought <laughs> process <laughs> as I'm listening to the whole thing. Okay, um, what's harder, drafting or revising?
1: drafting is a lot harder for me because I'm a perfectionist and actually V.E. Schwab talked about this on Saturday too at her panel but I'm just one of those people that like I'm such a perfectionist and so while I'm like shoveling all these words onto the paper I'm very aware that they're terrible and that I'm putting this terrible version of you know my, my story down on paper but I love revising because I know that I've already written the worst of it and so I'm reminded I'm reminded of this quote where it says like first drafting is the you're you're dumping sand in a sandbox, and you're and then um, the the revision process is that you're finally like getting to build the sandcastle out of them, and that's the way that I think about revising, and it's really empowering for me.
0: That's great. I I mean, you're able to push out some first drafts really well. I I'm stuck in well. My, the book before, I wrote it in four months. I don't know how I did that. that. I always joke about how I didn't write it. Something else wrote through me. Uh, <laughs> the second book, I'm way more conscious. And um, I'm picking it apart as I go, because I'm also struggling with that, You know, this is the worst that it's going to be. And, and uh, also knowing that in revision periods, when you're like, catch problems, and I'm trying to catch them too prematurely, I think, which stalls the process. Oh. Um, Okay. After you've finished a project, what's the first thing you do to celebrate?
1: I go get some food. Usually it's like a pizza or ice cream, like just something that's generally not that healthy. <laughs> and I'll bring it home and I'll, I'll put on a movie, usually like a Marvel movie or something I've been looking forward to watching for a while.
0: Okay. So then that ties into my next question. Sweet or savory?
1: I like a combination. I'm one of those people who likes, you know, like chocolate covered like pretzels or chocolate Mm. covered something salty. (laughs) (laughs) But if (laughs) if I had to choose, I'd probably go with the savory.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. That's fair. Uh, All right. My last rapid fire question is if you and you kind of answered this. So I'm going to challenge you to think of another example. If you could pick any fictional world to live in, where would it be?
1: any fictional world um yeah so I think my first one was probably The Shire because it just seems so quaint and cozy and like everybody's happy <laughs> um I think my other one you know I wouldn't mind living in Westview I wouldn't mind being under Wanda's spell you know oh, okay Everyone's had it so good there <laughs> <It>
0: was... <laughs> oh which decade which sitcom style would you want to be in
1: let's see I was a 90s kid. I just felt so nostalgic when they went through the 90s and it was that Halloween episode. I would probably mm-hmm. want to go back there. Like That just reminds me of all the best parts of my childhood.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. All right, well, thank you so much, Jacob. But Do you have anything you'd like to promote before you go?
1: Um, I guess if folks want to follow me, my uh, Instagram handle is jacobdevlincreates with underscores in between. Uh, and my most recent book is called A Thousand Dreadful Curses. So feel free to look that up if you're in the mood for a good Halloween read. Thank you so much for, for having me on this. This is a really fun conversation and great questions and I'm excited for the rest of your episodes. Well,
0: I'm good. Thank you too for joining me. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.